Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In 2015, if you're an educated woman with a good income on your own, you don't necessarily need to find a man who has a you know, higher income than yourself. Maybe what you really want to do is find somebody who's five years younger than yourself, who's you know, energetic and physically attractive. Marry them instead. And I don't see any reason why a blowjob is any less uniform than a Big Mac. And it's certainly no less tradable than a Big Mac. I mean, people certainly cross borders and travel around uh, in order to buy blowjobs. Dr. Marina Ajade is today's guest on the Economic Rockstar podcast. She is the author of Dollars and Sex, How Economics Influences Sex and Love. To be in with a chance to win this great book, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash competition. That's economicrockstar.com forward slash competition. Closing date for entries is Friday, February 6th. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or any tablet or PC. This is a fantastic way to get through a book while on the go. Choose any book for free. Who says there's no such thing as a free lunch? I recommend a great economics book to get you started called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. So get a book like this for free at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. Remember the E and the R for Economic Rockstar are capital letters. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to Economic Rockstar. I'm truly excited to have Marina Adshe join us today. Hi, Marina. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Dr. Marina Adshe engages in original economic research in the area of women in the economy. She has a PhD from Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, and currently teaches economics at the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia. In 2008, Marina developed a unique specialization in the economics of sex and love and launched an undergraduate course titled Economics of Sex and Love, which invited her students to approach questions of sex and love through an economist's lens. The class was an immediate hit with students and, by the time the first term started, had generated international media attention. This culminated in the publication of her first book, Dollars and Sex, How Economics Influences Sex and Love. Marina is a regular contributor to Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, and the Canadian Business Magazine. She has written for several other publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Sunday Times and The Daily Mail in the UK, and Psychology Today. She is a sought-after public speaker, as well as a radio and television commentator on issues relevant to all women. Marina, why sex and economics? Why not sex in economics? You know, so much of what we do talks about the household and the fundamental unit of the household. And so much of that comes from decisions that we make about sex and relationships. So it seems to me really kind of basic that economists should consider these issues. Uh, But personally, why I started talking about sex and economics, I mean, really, um, the process that sent me down this road was really in terms of my teaching and trying to engage students, you know, like everybody else, I was teaching big first year classes and talking to them about markets, teaching them supply and demand. And unlike me, when I, you know, when I took first year economics, I sat in the front row and I was enraptured with everything my professor said, but of course, most most students aren't like that. So I wanted to find a way of teaching economics uh, so that students could apply it to their own lives, you know, so they can internalize some of the theories that we want them to understand. And so I proposed the idea of teaching a whole course on the economics of sex and love, mostly from a pedagogical perspective. And it was a huge hit. I mean, it was just like like you said in the introduction, I mean, it had international media attention. There was, you know, newspapers in, in Russia and Korea all over the world were writing about my course before it even started. And so because of that, the first week of class, you know, I arrive and there's students sitting on the floor. This is not an, this is a very unusual event in uh, Canadian universities. And it was just, you know, popular from the word go. And, you know, and it really achieved what I hoped it would achieve. One of my favorite experiences from that first year was that I was getting coffee one day at the university uh, student union building and there were some students in front of me in the line and one of the people turned around and he said to me excuse me are you professor Adshade and I said I am and he said oh well you know I have to tell you we love Thursdays because one of our housemates is in your class and every Thursday he comes home and he tells us what you taught them and then we end up having this big discussion Uh, and then I thought well there you go I mean how many economics professors can make claim to inspiring 
I mean, we all inspire our students, of course we do, but just to be able to take the, the theories and apply them to their own lives in different ways. And so I went from the course to writing my blog. Uh, my blog originally was on the university server. Uh, eventually, it was picked up within two weeks. It was picked up by an organization in the U.S. called Big Think, and then it just kind of took off from there. And so I've been talking about the economics of sex and love ever since. And then, of course, eventually... I wrote my book, and uh, I've been writing. And my my new my latest gig is that I'm writing for Time, uh, which is exciting for me because it's such a big outlet. And I just think there's genuine interest in these topics. So why not have economists ask these issues? I think we have good tools. I, I think we have excellent tools for understanding these things. Your book is a collection of theories and evidence that would give anyone, frankly, a hard on for economics. That's a, quote, <laughs> that, that's a quotation from Amazon. Now. Why did Malthus call economics a dismal science? Because you have a bit of a background or an interpretation of why he did so. Yeah, I think that Malthus called economics the dismal science because he felt that economic theory predicts that whenever you have increases in technology, people would just increase the number of children they had in such a way that there would never be any gains in the standard of living. So we were destined to be overpopulated, overcrowded, and poor and so really the, that whole Malthus story is just based in, in our sexuality, right? It's people, you know, women couldn't keep their knickers on as soon as, you know, national GDP went up a little bit. And so really that's, I mean, that's why economics is called the dismal science. But, you know, of course, as soon as Malthus said, I, I feel some, somewhat sorry for Malthus because, you know, no sooner had these theories escaped his lips before things started to change. And that's when things get really get interesting because at the beginning of the industrial, I'm an economic historian. Did you know that? I didn't know that, no. <laughs> yeah, so I have a, I'm very interested in economic history. In fact, I spent most of my morning thinking about the relationship between the plow, the hoe, and <laughs> female sexual desire. Uh, so these are, I, I, can't, I can't get away from the economic no. history, but... We have 200 years of fertility changes. We have 100 years of changes in sexual values. And I think so much of this is rooted in our economic systems. And there's just so many good stories there just waiting to be told. A lot of changes in, I suppose, in our history in the past have been due to revolutions. Uh, and you mentioned one there, the agricultural revolution, the technological revolution. But there's also the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. And that revolutionized the whole idea that women should be at home and not be in the workforce. So today that, that has a lot of implications on how maybe women could have increased bargaining power relative to men. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about bargaining power because so much of it is tied to our fertility and actually our ability to control our fertility. And I think that's really what happened in the 1960s. I don't know when contraceptives were legalized in uh, Ireland, but in the United States, this year is actually the 50th anniversary. So in June, it'll be 50 years since uh, the birth control pill was legally available in the United States. Canada's a few years behind. But these had just sweeping changes in terms of not just how we choose or have our children, but they have sweeping changes in the way that, you know, women acquire education, the way that women invest in their careers, the age at which women choose to marry, and actually just frankly, the number of women who don't choose to marry at all. So small things, you know, this is, you know, a, a technological advance like contraceptives can have big social changes uh, and can lead to the situation where we are now, where Canada, where I am, you know, 35% of, of wives out-earn their husbands. And that's a pretty remarkable change from where we were 30 or 40 years ago. But I think it's interesting to look forward from that. I mean, where, what is the next big revolution? You know, another big anniversary that's coming up this year is that we're 20 years uh, it'll be 20 years since online dating started, which is hard to believe, right? Because it still seems like a, such a new uh, thing for people to do. But there's new technologies arriving all the time, and I think they're changing the way that we structure our relationships and the way that we bargain with our spouses, the way we, we negotiate our lives and our relationships. I think these things are all interesting to think about the past, but also to think about the future. And one of the articles you actually talked about the future of sex you said that we could have sex with androids and that a lot of science fiction novels can actually predict more accurately changes in technologies more than social change. Um, could you give us a little bit of a breakdown about what you mean by that? It's funny because I, I was just watching a program last night on robotics and there was an ethicist from the University of Manitoba by the name 
of Neil MacArthur, and he was talking about uh, sex with robots, and he predicts that sex with robots is going to be possible within the next five or six years. I think that that's actually an optimistic, I guess, I don't know if optimistic is the right word. <laughs> but it's an, a perfect... Maybe pessimistic for some. Yeah, I think it's going to present some genuine challenges for us as a society when that becomes possible. And I think that it is only a matter of time. It maybe won't be five or six years you know, we have, there, there's barriers that need to be passed. We talk about the, I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of the uncanny valley, but we need to, to, robots need to be created that are sufficiently human, that we're just not totally creeped out by the idea of having sexual relationships with them. Um, but I think that that has the potential to change the way that we structure our, our relationships. I think it has potential for some very serious ethical challenges and so that debate's yet to come. But there's other things that are much more imminent. For example, male contraceptives really are only a matter of years away now. There are new technologies out there that are already in human trials. And so that that's much closer. And I think that that will be really interesting to watch because, you know, you talk about bargaining power and the way that husbands and wives bargain with each other. A lot of that bargaining power that women have had traditionally has been tied around fertility uh, handing control of fertility to men has the potential to shift those dynamics somewhat. And whether or not it shifts it towards women or away from women, I, I think is still yet to be seen. What implications would that have on the economy or even or the microeconomy? Maybe even the macroeconomy because we do have prostitution, black market economies like that. So that might have implications based on some of the technologies that might be coming our way soon. Well, I think that, I mean, the, the market for the explicit markets for sex, the sex markets where people buy sex, those things have already been fundamentally changed by technology. You know, the ability for sex workers to advertise their services online has significantly expanded the size of the market and has gone a long way to, to normalizing that kind of behavior. You can see this, I don't know if you have this in Ireland or if this even exists in Europe, but there's... Uh, a lot of talk over here about the sugar daddy, sugar baby movement, you know, young girls seeking older men to support them while they go to university. I mean, these are future doctor, lawyers, politicians, uh, university professors who are hoping to fund their way going through school, basically through prostitution. And, and that's being made possible by the Internet. And so I think we're already seeing these changes. We don't really need to wait for androids to arrive. And there's a, there's a whole host of new sex toys, for example, that have the potential to replace a lot of the services that sex workers provide. And then I think that on top of that, what will be really, really interesting is, you know, if you're married and your husband has sexual desires, at the moment, there's not a lot of approval for the idea that he should take those sexual desires to a sex worker uh, should his wife not wish to fulfill them. What happens when there's androids available? I actually don't know. It has the potential to change a lot of dynamics within marriage. You mentioned there's one of the things I was going to ask you was about the sugar daddies and the, the college sugar babies. That website, SeekingArrangement.com, mm -hmm. seems to be growing phenomenally. And I only looked at it there earlier on tonight, researching for this interview. And there's been an increase in, action, in teachers in the United States attending this as well, providing their own services as a sugar baby, if you want to call it, younger teachers because of the drop in wage rates. But they're obviously dwarfed by the number of college students that are actually out there. And they mm -hmm. can actually get up to maybe 6,000 euro monthly cash and gifts from these sugar daddies. Okay, so we have to be very careful here because the Seeking Arrangements has gone out of its way to give people the perception that their market is expanding. And the way that they do that is every year they re release statistics saying, oh, you know, the number of girls signed up at such and such a university has increased 100% over the last year and so on. But, of course, you're an economist and you're, many of your listeners have a foundation in economics. And so we understand that supply is not the entire market, right? Mm -hmm. And Seeking Arrangements has never offered up any type of evidence that there's any real demand out there for these services. Now, I'm sure there is demand. I'm sure that there's lots of men who would love it if they could pay a monthly amount of money and have a sexually available university student. The question is, are there very many men out there who are willing to pay $6,000 a month to have a sexually available university student? The, the answer is probably no. 
And then the, then the question becomes, well, all these women who are signing up for these services because they've been told there are men who are paying five or $6,000 a month, are these girls really participating in the market when they find out that what's being offered is a significantly lower amount? It's not, it's not clear, right? So just because we know about supply doesn't really know, we doesn't tell us enough of a story about the whole market and about whether or not the market's expanding. But what we do know is that there's an increase in, in the willingness of, of students, you know, who are shouldering, shouldering an enormous amount of student debt and young women who are being paid low wages and are unemployed, their willingness to at least consider the possibility of entering this market. And I think that that's where the whole story is. Ireland has grown from an economy, I suppose, one of the, uh, Europe's poor to one of Europe's wealthy uh, over the last, I suppose, 50, 60 years. And it's become more liberal as opposed to a conservative country. And with this economic growth and surge in wealth, we have developed some of these liberal attitudes. And in May, we'll be holding a referendum to allow gay marriage. Is this something that you see in terms of maybe a causal relationship between economic growth and how open we are in terms of our attitudes? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was being interviewed by an Irish radio station last year and we we're talking about divorce and I was somewhat defending divorce and the person who was interviewing me said, you know, I'm going to stop you there because in Ireland, we're just so grateful to have divorce. Uh, we don't actually spend a lot of time worrying about it. And I thought that was really interesting because, of course, it's been a pretty prevalent phenomenon here in North America for the last 40 years, ever since the, the laws were changed. But I do see a connection. You know, we talk about marriage and we talk about same-sex marriage. I mean, marriage is an institution and as, it's an economic institution. And as an economic institution, we like to think that our institutions, you know, they create the incentives for our behavior and they structure, you know, the way that our markets operate. But the institutions themselves are endogenous. So, you know, societies choose the institutions that are optimal for them at any particular point in time. And so the traditional marriage between a man and a woman has historically been the optimal way of structuring a marriage, especially given that men traditionally have had the comparative advantage in work outside of the home. And so, you know, men have the comparative advantage in wage labor. That leaves women the comparative advantage in household production, particularly after the Industrial Revolution, when you get this strict division between working and home. And so it made sense to structure marriages that way because there were gains from trade, because men and women were so different. I mean, this is no longer the case. As women become more and more similar to men, in part because there's been changes in the market, the nature of production has changed a lot to erode away men's comparative advantage, you know, particularly as it's become more skill-based uh, and less physical. And so when men and women are very similar to each other, then the nature of marriage itself changes. You know, we no longer experience the gains from trade that we used to have in marriage because there's no clear-cut comparative advantage between men and women. Now, this is interesting. So the, we choose our marriage systems optimally, uh, and they evolve over time. And so then you start asking yourself, well, you know, if, if marriage itself isn't based on this idea of gains in trade, two people very different coming together in order to form this productive unit that is the household, uh, then why limit it to simply men and women? Why not open ourselves up to the idea of having women and women and, and men and men forming caring unions? Because, frankly... The purpose of marriage is no longer really coming together for productivity. The purpose of marriage is coming together for love and companionship. You know, the idea of having somebody to share your life with. I think it was Justin Wolfers and Betsy Stevenson who talk about the idea of consumption compatibilities as really being the driving force of marriage in the modern period. And so it doesn't really make sense anymore to structure the marriage around the whole idea of production. So I think that we see social change, institutional change that comes directly from changes in the economic system. You mentioned Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers there. Mm -hmm. You also commented on an article that they had written before, and again, tying in with the technological revolution, that has allowed maybe a same-sex union to take place, and you've put it down to the microwave oven. <laughs> right. 
How long ago did I comment on this? Well, I think it was maybe three or four years ago, but um, it just actually suggested that technology, I know it's in simplistic terms, like the microwave oven, so maybe that's a kind of an eye-catching headline, but technology has decreased the opportunity cost of having wives. I spoke with Shosanna Grossbard in episode 14, and she spoke a lot about this, about opportunity cost and so on, but not in terms of same-sex marriages. Mm-hmm. So it's just a novel approach and whether it has any economic realisms attached to it, because I had mentioned earlier on about economic growth, allowing us to have these liberal attitudes and maybe breaking away from the Catholic stronghold that we actually have had in Ireland in the early 20th century. Maybe that has, along with the economic growth, it's created an economic incentive for women to work as well outside of the household. Right. I I mean, you know, there's two theories about women working outside the household. The one is this idea that women were pushed out of the home, essentially, because a lot of the jobs that had been done by women in the home traditionally were replaced by uh, goods and services that are now available on the market. You know, our our lives are so much easier now. You know, before pre-electrification, it would take the average housewife two full days to do the family's laundry. Two full days of hand washing clothes by hand, hanging on the line, ironing it. It was a tremendous amount of work. And when you think about how long it takes to do the family's laundry today, I actually just asked my class this yesterday how long it takes for the average person to do the family's laundry. Uh, Their response was two and three hours. But, of course, that's not really true because the machines do all of the work. We have had a lot of our time freed up. And so Jeremy Greenwood um, has written an excellent paper uh, on this topic called Engines of Liberation, where he talks about electrification and revolutions in the home pushing women out into the workforce. But I don't think that's really the whole story. I think that in some respects, economic growth itself has pulled women out of the home into the workforce because it has created an enormous amount of opportunities for women to work especially as so much of growth is technology-driven and opens up opportunities for women to work in jobs that are very skill-based. When you teach sex and love, is that more of a micro-perspective or do you use macroeconomic variables to maybe get your point across or identify some relationships? Because just joking aside, micro might mean a household with two individuals and macro may appear like a group sex or orgy. So, <laughs> so how do you kind of take that thinking away from maybe your students? I am actually, so I, I, I am a macroeconomist. My background is all macro and economic history. So it's very hard to pull me away from that, even when we're really just speaking about micro. But because I, I like talking about institutions and institutional change, and because I like talking about social norms and social change, the macro and the economic history always kind of sneaks back in. I don't spend a lot of time talking about group sex in my classes, so my students don't get confused about that, but they hear enough about other stuff from me as it is, so um, they don't particularly need that. I did at one point in time write an economic theory of swinging. That was a while ago. When you wrote your book and delved into some of the figures or data and surveys that have been carried out, Was there any one particular thing that shocked you or surprised you? Well, you know, I um, I'm constantly being surprised. And I think that that is in part because I think society is changing much faster than we think it is. So we're, we're constantly in a state of evolution. And sometimes I think that we identify social problems. By the time we identify them, they're essentially being resolved. So, for example... One of the issues is, and this is, you know, so much of our media comes from the U.S., and so a lot of this perspective is being driven by the U.S. media, is this idea that we're in a crisis over marriage. Nobody's married anymore. You know, the sky is falling. How are we possibly going to survive this? And so the blame for this is being placed on the fact that women are becoming better educated, earning higher incomes and yet have been largely unwilling to kind of downgrade their expectations of what they're looking for in a spouse. You know, you know, in Ireland, in, in most of Europe, in all of North America, women have been out-educating men since the early 80s, right? And so there's far more educated women than there are 
educated man. And I know that when you talk to uh, Shoshana Grossbart, she talked about the whole idea of a, the gender ratio and how that influences markets. And so you might sit back and say, is female education is to blame for the fact that marriage is in decline and and female wages going up is responsible for the fact that marriage is in decline but we identify these problems but these problems very much are are resolving themselves so the one thing that i found that really surprised me was a study that came out just as as i was wrapping up the manuscript for the book is this new research that looks at um, how many women now are marrying much younger men and that was one of the more interesting things i came across so you know women it's true. Traditionally, women have looked for men who are better educated than, than themselves, mostly because education is a good predictor of income. But, you know, in 2015, if you're an educated woman with a good income on your own, you don't necessarily need to find a man who has a you know, higher income than yourself. Maybe what you really want to do is find somebody who's five years younger than yourself, who's you know, energetic and physically attractive, marry them instead. And the numbers are quite striking. In the U.S., they're into double digits on the uh, the share of new marriages to educated older women who are marrying men who are more than five years younger than themselves. So there may be a number of variables at play there. Well, you know, it's kind of like a reversal. You know, we used to think about the educated, high-income man marrying the woman who's younger than, than himself, taking her out to parties, showing her off to his friends. We appear to be in the midst of a, a social change where you're seeing educated, old, uh, higher-income women. And when I say older, I don't mean much older. I mean women who are in their late 30s and early 40s behaving exactly the same way. And so... I think that that was the one thing that surprised me the, the most is just the sheer numbers on that. Uh, how empowering was your book, Daughters and Sex, for you? And were there any economists that influenced your work? Well, you know, there's, I mean, you've seen that there's, there's hundreds of articles that have been referenced in the book. The whole book itself is, you know, sitting on the shoulders of the research that's been done by an enormous variety of economists. But if I had to choose just a couple who've influenced me along the way. First, I would say Jeremy Greenwood, who I've already mentioned. I was in a talk years ago at a conference. Uh, Jeremy's a macroeconomist, and he wrote this excellent paper on social change and technology, where he talks about how contraceptives basically led to the sexual revolution. But it's, it's a terrific theory. I know that we kind of widely accept that this is true. But I was at that conference, and Jeremy was talking, and he was telling a story about how Casanova used uh, lemons as uh, contraceptives. And, you know, when I... I hear somebody like him, he's a pretty preeminent economist, taking on these, I think, very brave topics. I think that really inspires me to do the same. You know, I think that one of the big things, and this should be perhaps a warning to anybody who's listening who thinks that doing the economics of sex and love sounds like a fun road to go down to, it requires actually a fair amount of courage to do this. Just like Gary Becker, you know, Gary Becker, who you know eventually won the Nobel Prize, probably one of the most important economists of all time, when he started down his household economics road, he was largely criticized. And I think that it takes a lot of courage to talk about new ideas and bring new ideas into the economics fold. I feel like I've gotten off track from what you originally asked me. Oh, so I go back to Jeremy Greenwood. I think he's incredibly brave. And I think there's a number of big economists out there who are willing to take on these topics. And all of them have inspired me. You know, the fact that Betsy Stevenson, who's advisor to the president of the United States, less than two years ago was writing articles on same-sex marriage. I think it really speaks to this. So my inspiration is really economists who've been brave enough to take on these topics. Full respect to what you're doing as well, because it's probably something that your colleagues at work told you it wouldn't work. Well, you know, I worry sometimes that working in an academic community encourages me to be too cautious. And so I have to kind of work against that. And I think that one of the so I love the economics profession, and so I'm reluctant to criticize the economics profession, but I will say this, is that I find that when we produce new economists, we send them out in the world of being excessively cautious in that we don't do enough to encourage creativity. And the whole the way the academia works with the system of, of tenure and promotion, 
I think that that really works against the idea of people thinking creatively. And a lot of the work that I have done, which has been based on a lot of the work I've done by other people, it requires an ability to think creatively. And it, and it would be nice if we could encourage more creative thought um, so that we can find interesting and I think important ways to apply the theories that we have. I think it would be a great asset to our community. And yes, and so working in an academic environment like I do, I think that one has to actually work very hard to maintain your creativity. You know, work hard to maintain a willingness to assume risks in the work that you do. You know, my favorite story on this I don't know if you know the work of uh, Nathan Nunn. Nathan's at Harvard University. And Nathan's built his career on his, his early work that was on the effect of slavery in Africa on the current economic environment in Africa. It's incredibly important work. It's incredibly uh, creative, and it required an enormous amount of bravery for him to do this work. And when he was doing his Ph.D., I know that he received a lot of feedback that discouraged him from taking his slavery papers to the job market. They encouraged him to write more traditional, more conservative type papers on the job market. But, you know, Nathan is a very brave person. He took his work out into the world and it has served him remarkably. I mean, within, I'm losing track of the years, but within 10 years of, of Nathan finishing his PhD, he's a full professor at Harvard because he was prepared to be creative and take risks. And that's the thing with a profession. There seems to be standards that we all need to conform to. And it's only those who are brave enough to break away from the standards that a discipline like economics or any science can actually move forward and progress. And I suppose, you know, you must be in that category with likes of Gary Becker, uh, Shirzana Grossbard, and others like Nathan Nunn, as you mentioned. And this will actually add more on and let us think more creatively and evaluate the whole idea on the theories that are actually hypothesized. This can only be good for the discipline. Yeah, I, I think it can. And I think that there's a lot of people doing some very important work, but there's a lot of topics that we still haven't tackled that I think, uh, you know, we have some brilliant minds and I, I'd love to see more of that. So if I've contributed to that in any way, I would be very happy to think that that would be the case. Do you have an affirmation or philosophy that you'd like to share with our listeners? Because you mentioned something about creativity earlier on, and maybe that's where your the core belief stems from, and you might like to share it with us. You know, can I share a short story with you, if you yeah. if you don't mind? Is that um, I haven't told very many people this, but I think it bears telling. Is that when I was in my, doing my master's degree in economics, uh, when I finished my master's, I was actually pregnant at the time, and I was single. And I already had a child. I was just, re I was recently divorced. And I chose to do a PhD, which I think is probably an unusual decision. There's not very many pregnant and single PhD students. And I gave birth to my son during the first term of final exams for my PhD. And, it, and I still wrote those exams. And I think that one thing that that experience taught me is the value of taking risk. I mean, that, that's a risky endeavor, Right. I was six months pregnant when I started my PhD. And so I think that kind of has carried through. I mean, he's 16 years old now, uh, eating me out of house and home. But the idea that you can take a, a risk and be successful, I think I would consider my mantra. And, and, and a willingness to think creatively and apply creative thought to the work that you do. I think that is just incredibly valuable. It's been valuable to me, and I think it's, it's valuable to other people in the profession as well. And do you have any personal habits that you might like to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, you know, because of the type of work that I do, I would say that uh, my most persistent personal habit is that I spend as little time as possible in my office sitting behind my desk. I like to be out in the world. You know, if I have something that I have to write or if I have a talk that I have to give, a lot of the thoughts that inspire that I get by just being out and walking around. So... I um, When I wrote my book, I was living in Paris at the time. And so many of the, the ideas that appear in the book were conceived on the streets of Paris, you know, walking, walking, walking. And now that I live in Vancouver, I live very close to the seawall. I don't know if you know Vancouver at all, but it has this spectacular seawall 
Uh, so if I have something I want to write or something I want to work on, or even something simple like choosing the title of something that I'm writing, you know, I'll throw my shoes on and I will walk. And I walk, I walk for, you know, 10 kilometers quite easily. And I think that that's, for me, that's the best work habit um, is to kind of clear my mind of everything else and let the ideas come themselves. And I'm sure Paris was a great inspiration as well, being the city of love. <laughs> Paris was wonderful. It was wonderful living there. But in the, I think really the best thing about Paris is that, you know, writing requires some level of isolation, right? It's very difficult to fit writing in around your everyday life. Uh, and so Paris allowed me the opportunity to kind of isolate myself from everyday things. Uh, and I think that that disconnect really helped me in writing the book. Let's get back to some of the content in your book again. Who makes a better saver or budgeter, male or female? Well, single women are not very good savers. Married women, though, are better savers. So I guess it would in part depend on your marital status. I think that I've mentioned in this in the book that the best savers are lesbians, right? They seem to have extremely high savings rates. I think in part because if you're in a lesbian couple, the life expectancy of the couple is much higher than, say, a heterosexual couple because just because women outlive men. But that, that's a good question. I'm going to go with married women and not single women. <laughs> okay. What about orgasms? Who's a better faker? Well, I don't know who's a better faker. I mean, I think we all know who's more willing to fake, right? right. But the great work that's being done on orgasms is, I mean... If you're teaching game theory to students, that orgasm theory is just so much fun. You know, the idea of faking using uh, orgasms to signal interest. And I can't comment on who's better at faking. I'm surprised. I'm actually surprised how much men do fake. I've had some interesting conversations in, in my lectures with my students about why that might be the case. I get an enormous amount of inspiration from my students, actually, because they, they're very open and very willing to the idea, to talking about these ideas in the classroom. And, and so I owe the thousands of students I've had over the years an enormous debt of gratitude for that. If I could ask you, what were some of the most memorable questions students asked you? And I'm sure they might be the most difficult to answer, but ones that kind of get you thinking. Oh, my gosh trying to think of memorable questions. I'm, I had one student ask me a question. I'm sorry, I can't actually remember the, the question. It was something about sex. And this is the first time I taught. It was my first term of teaching the economics of sex and love. And I can't remember the question, but I remember my answer because I said to her, I can't tell you that. If I answered that question, I think your mother would have grounds for complaint. And she responded to me. She goes, oh, I tell my mom all about this class. She'd love to come, actually. <laughs> so, That's a great endorsement. Yeah, it's a good endorsement. I can't think off the top of my head. But they, you know, one of the things I, found, I have found with the students is how ingrained um, some of our ideas about gender stereotypes are among the students. So, for example, every single time I teach these classes, at some point in time, I have to tell my students to stop using the term gold digger as a derogatory term. Um, you know, throughout most of human history, women have been in a position where the only way they've been able to acquire resources is through the exchange of sex. And the fact that we've kind of reached a stage where gold diggers used in a derogatory term, we often have these conversations. They seem, think it's very foreign, this idea that uh, women should care about a man's income, but none of them seems to be at all challenged by the fact that men should care about a way that a woman looks. So we have a lot of these kind of conversations in my classes. Could I talk about the supply and demand? If there's an excess of women in the market, the marriage market, say, and they have may possibly an excess demand for marriage. Would this increase their price if you want to go toward an equilibrium or possibly increase their expectations? So, you know, I, I'm i very reluctant to, you know, I did this in the book and I somewhat regret it because in, in thinking about this afterwards, I'm somewhat troubled by the whole idea of supply and demand on these markets. And I guess it's, it's not, you, not in the way that you used it, the whole concept has a tendency to be somewhat abused because it, you know, it's basically founded in this idea that on the market for sex and, and love and, and marriage, that women are always the suppliers and men are all the, always the demanders. And it's somewhat grounded in this idea that women don't like sex 
and that if men want to have sex, then they have to compensate women in order to encourage them to have sex with them. And this is, it's just, it's a somewhat bizarre idea. I mean, it's, it has its roots in our economy because of so, over so much human history, this was the only way that women can support themselves is by exchanging sex for resources. But I don't think it's a very good descriptor of, of the way that we operate now. One of the things I always say, and I, I think this is true, is that really, if we want to think about supply and demand, we really need to have some form of currency. And on the market for sex and love, there is no currency. So it's more like a barter system, right? Right. It's possibly an intangible currency. I use the word currency loosely, but it's something that's intangible, like love, maybe shown by buying gifts or like flowers or whatever it might be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think that there is like a million different things, right? And so if, if you're on the market for sex and love, you are offering up thousands of individual qualities to to other people who are on the market. And each one of those other people are also offering up thousands of little qualities. I mean, anybody who's been in a relationship knows that the small things that really matter over time, right? right. So all of this kind of adds up to what you're offering. Uh, and so that when people come together on the market for sex and love, it's very much like a barter economy. You know, I don't have to just find... Uh, somebody who's selling what I want to buy, I also have to find somebody who's buying what I have to sell. And that's the kind of the fundamental differences in these markets because as any economists know, barter economies are horribly inefficient, especially when markets are thin. Uh, It's difficult to find somebody who's buying what you have to sell and selling what you want to buy on a thin kind of traditional dating market. And so when we think about the idea that we have excess supply of women or excess supply of men, I think that we have to keep in mind the difficulties just that are inherent in the market itself. I mean, think about the market this way. is It makes it so much easier to understand the effects of online dating has had on, on relationships or I mean, forget about online dating, just the fact that we have these big social networks um, and how much that's changed our market in terms of thickening the market, right? Increasing the, the number of people that you meet and the opportunities for exchange. So I know it's never really just a simply matter of excess supply or excess de- demand as much as we would love to be able to think about those terms because it makes it so much easier for us to understand. You mentioned there about all the maybe different signals and so on that we actually send out and all these receptors. Maybe we could leave that to chemistry. Pardon the pun. One of your students, I think you mentioned before, was inspired by the Big Mac Index. Actually, can we go back to the idea of chemistry? Oh, lovely. Yes, perfect. I would like to talk about that very much. Personally, I'm very interested in the idea of the biology behind love at the moment. This is where a lot of the thinking that I'm doing is on this topic. And I find this really interesting because we live in an era in which we tend to believe that love itself has some magical qualities. It's like, you know, rainbows and unicorns. But reality, love is very much a biological response. And what's interesting about that to me is that when we think about love as a biological response, it's actually much easier to think about it in economic terms, um, to think about the idea that we actually choose who we love. So one of the analogies that I've been thinking about, so there's some research that says that heightened a sense of excitement that you get when you meet somebody that you're attracted to is so similar to other reactions to other experiences that people can sometimes confuse them. And researchers did the study it was actually done here in, in Vancouver, where I live, where they had uh, people walking across a, a bridge. It's this very long suspension bridge over a ravine. And they had a young woman standing at the other side with a clipboard, and she was stopping young men. And she was asking them, would they respond to a survey? And so the survey was designed to gauge their sense of romantic interest. I think very cleverly at the end of the survey, the person collecting the data said, if you have any other information you want to share, give me a call. And she wrote her number down on a piece of paper and she gave it to the person she was interviewing. So they did this twice, one on the long suspension bridge and then one just people walking across a platform. And the people who had walked across the suspension bridge were eight times more likely to call her than the people who walked across the platform, okay? Mm -hmm. This doesn't sound like economics at the moment, I realize that. But it's interesting because 
I think to some degree, this suggests that we choose to put ourselves in that position to fall in love and we choose who we fall in love with. And that is very subject to the market, right? Um, I might go to an amusement park with somebody and ride the roller coaster with them. Um, and after coming off the roller coaster, feel a romantic attraction to them in part because of the heightened adrenaline of being in the roller coaster. And that is the kind of magical part of love. But the fact that I've chosen to be there with them is very much a part of the economic story. So I'm very interested right now, the intersection between romantic biological love and economic systems. And I think there's some interesting stories to be told here because it seems clear to me that we're changing over time who we choose to fall in love with. There's been a, a huge increase in the number of studies done on behavioral economics, and that is something that may interest this whole area of love and marriage and sex. And I'm sure there's a lot of studies that have used MRIs to identify patterns, brain patterns that might stimulate attractiveness to people. I'm sure that might fall under something like chemistry or biology, the baseline being human behavior. Do you have any examples of something like that that you might have observed? Well, the only thing I would add is, well, here's something that I find particularly interesting, is that back in the 1960s, a researcher in the U.S. collected data from 10,000 university students, and he asked them one very simple question. He said to them, if you met somebody who had a variety of other qualities that you valued, but you didn't love, would you still marry them? And at the time, there was a really surprisingly high willingness to marry without love. So 75% of the women who he surveyed said that they would marry without love if there were other important qualities. 35% of the men said they would marry without love. So this was not entirely a female phenomenon. And so researchers have done this over and over again throughout time. The last time these surveys were done, and we're in the mid-1990s, and I think the reason why it, this was the last time it was done, it was at that time it was almost entirely universal where people said they would not marry without love. And this is very closely tied to income growth. So as our incomes have increased, our willingness to marry without love has severely diminished. Uh, and cross-national studies have done that the support this, that, that higher income countries, people have a much lower willingness to marry without love. And if nothing else says there is a relationship between love and economics, I really don't know because it's, it says something so fundamental um, about the way that we choose who we love as a function of the economy in which we live. Very interesting insight, and I'm sure it'd be something that we could look at again and update that study. Yeah, I'd love to do that. In economics, we have a number of indices that track prices, such as the Big Mac Index. You've identified something unique. Yeah, well, I, I can't take credit for this. So the very first term that I taught the economics of sex and love, my students had to write papers as a group, and, and a group of students actually came up with this idea that you could have a blowjob index, which would be great. You know, the thing about the Big Mac Index, the reason why the Big Mac is used in the Big Mac Index is that it is a very tradable good, and I, I don't see why blow uniform, uniform and tradable. And I don't see any reason why a blowjob is any less uniform than a Big Mac. <laughs> There's a quote for you. And it's certainly no less tradable than a Big Mac. I mean, people certainly tr cross borders and, and travel around uh, in order to buy blowjobs, right? Right. I wrote about this in my book, the idea that instead of the Big Mac Index, the Economist magazine could do the blowjob index. And they could look at uh, variations in prices of blowjobs around the world. And I think this would be really, really interesting because there is an enormous amount of variation in the price of this service, which is largely uniform. You know, I think it's almost certainly tied to the opportunities for women. Uh, it's certainly tied to development. I feel fairly confident a blowjob in Vancouver is more expensive than, say, a blowjob in Bangkok, although I personally don't have any evidence of that. This idea actually caught the attention of The Economist. I heard from a writer at The Economist last year who said that they were interested in exploring the idea of doing a blowjob index. But the problem is that it's just incredibly difficult to get this data. We're getting better because there are so many web services that post prices. So I think that we'll get there eventually, but I just don't think we're there now. A Big Mac is quite standardized despite the price changes, but the size of a penis... Do you think the price of a blowjob is correlated with the size of the penis? I'm not sure. Um, it's just that... What, you're also... what, Fred, do you have, do you have something to share? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'd like to edit this part out, but I just have to go. 
no. I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. You no. cannot you cannot blame me for that. No, um, no, I should have seen it coming. Oh, there we go again. Um, the, <laughs> um, there's a penis size worldwide map on Target Map, and I, I'm going to ignore the self-measured penis sizes. Right. There's ones that are measured, and Thailand, I'm sorry for all the Thais out there, but they're the smallest. Whereas the largest, which were measured, officially measured, was Ecuador. So I'm wondering, is there, well, I'm not wondering, but I'm just, someone like The Economist are taking this into consideration in terms of the donut blowjob index. I'm sure they'll have to look at the size because a Big Mac at the end of the day is standard. Two burgers, three <laughs> buns. <laughs> so... I'm just going to not comment on that. I uh, uh, Don't reset uh, me up. Right, we move on. Internet resources. Do you have a favorite that you'd like to share? I live in a country that collects very little data. And so I am very excited by organizations that collect data. And so my very favorite internet resource, I would have to say, was the Pew Research Center in the U.S., uh, which collects so much fascinating data on so many interesting topics. And they're not afraid to ask people what they think. They're not afraid to look at some really engaging topics. So they are my favorite internet resource. And then, of course, I spend an enormous amount of time on Twitter. If you find the right people to follow on Twitter, you can just spend your days observing some really fascinating conversations. Your book, Dollars and Sex, can be found on Amazon.com. And I really recommend people go out and buy this. But do you have any other recommended books that you'd like to share with our listeners? Why don't I tell you what I've just finished reading? It's not an economics book and it's not even nonfiction, but I've just finished reading uh, Dear Committee Members. Have you read this book? I never heard of it, sorry. It's fantastic. It's a novel. It's written by uh, Julie Schumacher. The whole book is uh, letters written by an academic. The academic is in the English department, but it's any every economist should read it if you want to know what other academics in the university think about economists in the university, because there is basically a running commentary on how the economists all think that they're gods and kings in the university. The book is hilarious. It's a really great look at university life. It's really terrific. So that, that is the book I'd recommend right now. Do you have any takeaway that you'd like to share with our listeners that might help them get things done? Get things done in terms of research or writing or... Oh, uh, anything maybe in, in terms of life perspective? Okay, well, I, I don't like to give out personal relationship advice, but if I if pressed, I will say this. Make sure you know your value on the market. Marina, thank you so much for being so inspiring and joining me on the show. I had a blast and a person around the law firm. It was great fun. Share with our listeners where they can find you. I could always be found on Twitter at Dollars and Sex, and I also have a website, which is just marinaadshade.com, and I post all my writing there. You can find all the links to Marina on Economic Rockstar forward slash Marina Adshade. Marina, you are an economic rockstar. Thank being, you. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you very much. Hi, Marina. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Marina, I'm so intrigued in what you had to talk about today. Your voice is kind of giving away something about, uh, I was going to start that again. This is going to be somewhat edited as well if I make some kind of errors. <laughs> I wasn't expecting the, um, the sultry voice. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'll throw you off. Yeah, you did actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 <laughs>